Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we have your word uh, for us to read and to learn. We pray, God, that you open our heart, open our minds that we can understand and engage with your word, and open our hearts that we can see its relevance to us, and strengthen our will that we can respond to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Second Samuel 5, I'd like to begin with this one question for us. How can we have a perfect life? How can we have a perfect life? You know, the reality of life is this. The life we have very much depends on who are our leaders, whether we have a land, and whether we have the ability to overcome our enemies. Let me say that again. The reality is that the life we have depends very much on three things. Our leaders, our land, and our ability to overcome enemies. Because if our leaders are not good enough, there will always be evil, misjudgment, injustice, failures, and external threats. If we do not have a permanent land, we'll be always standing on borrowed spaces, and we can be chased out anytime. And if we do not have enough strength, we will always be fearing enemies. Enemies that can attack us from outside, enemies that can attack our bodies, enemies that can infiltrate and attack our souls. How can we have a perfect life? It depends on our leaders, it depends on land, and our ability to overcome enemies. So this morning, as we come back to 2 Samuel 5, uh, as we look at it, we read about Israel, who is having any kind of life but a perfect life. In fact, they have dreamt of a perfect life. They heard of the perfect life that God has promised. In fact, let me read to you what God has promised to Israel many years ago. This is uh, taken from Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. The life that they dream about. God said, Observe therefore all the commands I am giving to you today, so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to the end. This is the perfect life they heard about and dreamt about. God as their leader, a perfect land and strength to overcome enemies and a long life to enjoy it. But the harsh reality is this. As you reach the end of 2 Samuel 4, that they realize that they're actually living a hopeless life. Because at the end of 2 Samuel 4, Israel does not have a leader. Their army uh, chief army, uh, the army of uh, chief of their army, Abner, is dead. Their kind of a king, the puppet king, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, is dead. They have no leaders. They have no permanent land. Since Saul's death, they have not won much battle. They are always afraid of getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and they have no strength because every enemy comes. They are kind of like um, there for them to slaughter. So Israel does not have the leader, the land, or the strength. And what can they do? How can Israel change from a hopeless life to a life that is promised and perfect from God? And this is where, with this context, we look at verses 1 to 3 of today's passage. This is what Israel finally decided to do 
when they reach that hopeless stage. Let me read verse 1 to 3 as you look at it with me. 2 Samuel 5 verse 1, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, David, You will shepherd my people Israel. You will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and anointed David king over Israel. So Israel, in their hopeless situation, realized that they have gone too far away from God and they need to come back to God. But how do people come back to God? From verse 1, we realize the Israelites realize to come back to God, they have to come back to the one who knows God and is known by God. That's why verse 1, it says, look at it, all the tribe of Israel up north, they came down to David down south at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. Just look at verse 1. It, it, it has a very amazing confession here. So now you have Israel and his elders. They did not approach 37-year-old David and say, you are our own flesh and blood, meaning David, you are part of us. But they come humbly to David and say, David, we are your flesh and blood. Meaning, we Israel, we are part of you, David. We belong to you. Do not reject us. Do not forget us. So Israel, if you notice, in his hopeless in his hopeless state, turns to David for forgiveness, for rescue, for care, for coverage under his kingship. We are your own flesh and blood. And in their coming to David, Israel finally come to their senses how they have strayed away from God and they needed to come to David. In fact, they know two things that are crucial about David. Look at it with me. The first one is in verse 2a. Israel knew that, David, you are the one who led Israel, lead us on our military campaigns. You know what? They, they knew all along that Saul was their king, physical king, but they knew that David was the chosen one from God. David was the one who knew the heartbeat of God. Because who else can trust God like David? Who else will fight for God's people like David. You know what? David was just a teenager when he fought the Philistine against Goliath. Um, and at that time, probably it was 20 years ago, he was just a kind of a young teenager. But which of the elders who come to him today would not for, would, would, would forget the famous words that David said two decades ago when he fought Goliath. At the time, you can imagine the elders were probably not so elderly. They are probably younger, 20 years ago. They were probably in the army of Saul, but they were shivering when they hear the, the towering voice of Goliath. And their own king, King Saul, was also in the tent, right? Nobody dares to go out. And while they are shivering in their hopelessness, come this young teenager, right? In his teens, come out and says, who is that guy? And he went out and says, I will fight him. So there, the silence of the whole Israel camp, look at this young man hating uh, against a very seasoned giant warrior. And they remembered the words of David. Let me read to you as he confronted the, uh, Goliath two decades ago. David said to the Philistine Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. 
This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Who can forget that? Which elder, if he was in the, in the army of, Israel, of Saul, can forget that? Who else can defeat the undefeatable enemies of Israel? Who else can go to war for God's people, for the glory of God? It has to be David. There is only David. They knew that it was David and not Saul that has always brought them victory. Second thing Israel knew about David is also in verse 2, verse 2b. Look at it with me. And Israel said to David, The Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. You will become their ruler. They knew all along that the young shepherd boy, David, was meant to be the ruler over them. King Saul knew it in 1 Samuel. The crown prince Jonathan knew it. All Israel knew it. But it was only at this point of their hopelessness when they have no king, no land, no strength, they come and appeal to David that he will once again save them from the Philistines and the enemies of God. So as I pause here, I want to just pause and think about ourselves at this moment. Now as the Israelites, they recognize that they have come to God's chosen king to receive God's rescue and promise. We probably need to think about ourselves. Have we recognized that we actually need to come back to God's king for rescue and for his promised life to all that comes to him? You know what, what, kind of, what kind of king was David? David was a king who knows God and cares for God's people, and they knew it. King David was the one who laid down his life for God's people, and Israel finally acknowledged that. They knew that David will not let Israel be like ships without shepherd. When they come to him, they know David will respond. But the Bible tells us that David is just pointing to the greater king for us. Our King Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus said in John 10. Let me read to you what Jesus said. John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just as David was willing to lay down his life for the Israelites, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. But yet, if you look at this, it's amazing. Like David, Jesus never forces himself on us. He invites us to come to him willingly. If you look at verse 5, this is what happens. David became king over Judah, but he waited for another seven and a half years before Israel came to him willingly and he accepted them. You know, for some of us, perhaps King Jesus has waited for more than seven and a half years. For some of us, he has been patiently waiting for us to return and to actually acknowledge that he's our king that will finally give up our own kingship and ask Jesus to be king. But perhaps some of us are already Christians for a long time. We know that he is king. Then the question is, are we humbly submitting ourselves to him and to his kingship every day? For the moment we wake up, before we even utter a word to the person next to us or closest to us, have we uttered our words to our king? Have we submitted to Him, knowing that He is our King? Do we trust in Him when things go sour, when things go difficult, or we kind of find our own ways and our own means uh, to solve it? You know what? Just as King David, he made a covenant with Israel at that day and be their king and to protect them and to rescue them and have coverage of them. Jesus made His covenant with us 
on that night when he broke his body, when he broke his bread and gave the wine and says, I will be your shepherd, I will fight your war, and I will give you a place in my kingdom. So David is the rightful king that God used to save Israel. But Jesus is that greater and perfect king that God uses to rescue us. But now we must go back to the story, isn't it? So look with me in verse 6 onwards. As the people come before David as king, the question is, what will the king do? And the answer is in verse 6. The king will establish his kingdom because the time has come. Look at verse 6 with me. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. No, as Israel's king, David now bravely confronts the enemies of God, beginning with the Jebusites, who are the ancient enemies of Israel, the ancient inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sworn enemies that Israel cannot defeat. The Jebusites are not people that you take lightly for. Neither is the land or the city of Jerusalem. They are not to be taken lightly for. Because Israel knew it from history, that for them to receive the promise and perfect life, they have to defeat the, the Jebusites. Let me read to you. This is what they know from God. God says, Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. To get the promised life, Jebusites have to be destroyed. But you know what? From experience, the Israelites know that they can't do it. Joshua, the book of Joshua tells us, the Judah, they tried, but they could not dislodge the Jebusites who are living in Jerusalem. Judges tells us, now the Benjamin, the Benjamites tried, but they just could not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. These two are representative of Israel and Judah. To them, the Jebusites are undefeatable. Jerusalem is a, is a place that cannot be conquered. But now that Israel has obeyed God and submitted to his king, the question is, will they finally defeat Jebusites and possess Jerusalem? Look at verse 6 with me. If you have your Bible or the screen, look at it with me. The Jebusites said to David, you're not getting in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Now, if the Israelites knew their history, well, the Jebusites knew it even better, right? Yes, David come out with his forces. He's like, ah, here comes the losers. says, even the lame and the blind in our land can defeat you. They think so lowly of David and David's God, and they think really highly of themselves and of their city walls. But probably they are right in a worldly sense because they have been losers all this while to them and to their ancestors. So as we read this verse 6, we are expecting a great war, isn't it? We expect a great battle between the Philistines and the Israelites led by David. When I read this, I think of the... I'm also a Lord of Ring fan, right? The Black Gates in Return of the King, the final episode where you have Mordor and uh, the massive army and you have uh, Aragorn and his small army coming up. And you can you expect at least have some fight going on uh, to see how they win. But if you look at verse 7, it's, a, it's an anticlimax. <laughs> no mentioning of how the battle won. He just start off saying this, right? Verse 7. But nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. It almost sounds intentional. The author is not too bothered to explain the fight going on. Just, well, nevertheless, he fought over them. In fact, verse 8 goes on, right? On that day, David has said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft, kind of the water source, to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemy. 
That's why they said the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. You know what? Verse 8 elaborates that instead of David being the lame and the blind, it is the Jebusites, the undefeatable soldiers who are the lame and blind. Uh, and they are just defeated by David with nevertheless. And in fact, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace in verse 8. It means that God's weak opponents, they will not defeat God's king. David's kingdom will be established and David's kingdom will stand. So in two short verses, the kingdom was won, and the next four verses is used to describe the kingdom of David, that it is Jerusalem, it is also called Zion, it is called the city of David, and it's here the king established his throne because the Lord Almighty was with them, was with him. But look at look at verse nine and ten with me. As we read nine and ten that as David builds his city and becomes strong, we realize that behind the curtain of David's success is God himself who is making David strong. Look at verse 10 as I read it for us. And David became strong, became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. It almost sounds like verse 2 at the beginning, that it is God who made David the shepherd of God's people. Verse 2 says, The Lord said to David, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be their ruler. So as David, he established his throne and called it the city of David, we start to suspect there must be more to this than just about David. Because behind David's kingship, behind David's throne, stands God himself who is actually ruling and caring for the people who have returned to him. In fact, while David fought the Jebusite and established his throne, we read of a greater throne uh, of behind David. We just read Psalm 2 just now. Uh, Simpson read it for us. I'll read it to you again. Psalm 2. Listen to this. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs, scoffs at the enemies. He rebukes the enemies in his anger and terrifies his enemy in his wrath and says, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. And while David kind of names Jerusalem, which is also called Zion, the city of David, Hebrews 12 unravels, that the, unravels the curtain behind David that God has a greater plan. Because while, they, while Israel, they are able to come to their king at Jerusalem, at Mount Zion, the city of David, Hebrews 12 tells Christians this, listen to this, Hebrews 12 says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of David. No, it's not the city of David. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So after David, God will establish a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly Zion, the city of the living God. In fact, God did that a thousand years after David, isn't it? That God had sent his own son, born in Bethlehem, the place that David was born, the place that Samuel anointed him to be king decades ago. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and at the right time he made his way to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom and his throne. But not by physical strength, but by God's strength. And he went there not wearing a golden crown. He wore a crown of thorns. He went there not to sit on a nice, beautiful throne. 
he placed himself on a wooden piece of wood. But it is that way that God established his kingdom. And Jesus, King Jesus, he must come back into this world because King David only represents God. Because King, is, King David is not perfect. We can get this ominous kind of uneasy feeling as we look at verses 13 to 16. It is almost a dark cloud will come later in Second Samuel as we read verse 13. That David begins to acquire more wives, concubines and wives in Jerusalem. This is an ominous sign, a bad sign, because God had warned Israel that his king must not be like the kings of the world. He must not acquire for himself many wives. So if you're a second-time reader of 2 Samuel, meaning if you've read through Samuel and now you're coming back, as you read this, you'll start to feel the uneasy feeling. Oh, it's coming, it's coming. Uh, but that's not where we're going today. In the weeks ahead when we look at it, it will come. But now we must get back into action. Okay? So come back to verse 17 to 20, and we'll see the battle with the king's oldest and greatest enemy, the Philistines. Now as you look at verse 17, just look at it with me. The enemy hears of David's kingship and they come in full force against God and his king at the valley of Rephaim. Rephaim just outside Jerusalem. Now the name Rephaim points to the ancient giants who once lived and flourished uh, in Canaan. So the battle will be held in the valley of the giants. What a place to name uh, a place, right? It's going to be another big battle that's going to happen in the valley of giants. Because why? Men fear giants. The Israelites fear giants. Um, they, they remember in their history that uh, giants are things that they don't like to handle. Um, in fact, there was um, the time when God wanted to give Israel another city, the city of Jericho. And they went in to spy on it, ready to go in to fight. And then they saw giants and said, we are like grasshopper. And they came and said, God, no way, we are not going in. We will rather rot and die than we go in. And you know what happened? They died. The whole generation that got brought up from Egypt to the Red Sea, ready to enter the promised land, because of giants, they end up dying in the desert. But you know what? As our life drama is like, your greatest fear always comes back to you, right? So here we have, they are here in Jerusalem, and their feared enemies, the Philistines, now gather in front of them in the valley of the giants in full force. But this time around, the battle is not met with fear. Look at it. For Israel now has his king, David the giant slayer. So look at verse 17 as I read it for us. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and he went down to the stronghold, which is Jerusalem. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of the Raphaim, the land of the giants. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered David, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As water breaks out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols here, there, and David and his, enemy, uh, and his men carried them off. Now, as David faced his greatest enemies of all time, what is the, what's the first response of God's king? It's what a God's king would do. He kind of looked 
to his greater God. He comes and prays to God. Look at verse 19. Shall I go? David inquired of the Lord. Go, the Lord replied. Will you deliver them to me? David asked. I will surely deliver them into your hands, replied the Lord. So David went to battle. He defeated them like he did with Goliath. But notice, notice, look at the passage. Notice that while David's army was clearly in the battle, as we read the passage, we notice that they are kind of not in the story. <laughs> they only came to collect the loot, right? We cannot help but notice that it is actually really a battle between the enemy and God's king. In fact, it is a battle between the false gods and the living God. Look at verse 21. When the Philistines lost their battle, they abandoned their gods. They left their idols as they fled, and David and his men came and carried them off. Because David knew that it was God who has won the battle. So he called the place Baal Perazin, the Lord has broken out. And so begins the downfall of the enemies. Now they try to regroup again and attack God's king again. Their strategies didn't really change, but perhaps visually more frightening. Um, they are now going by brute force. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So now the losers are back. The Philistines kind of table is turned. But David, David did not take it upon himself. Like, I won it first time. Let's do it again. He did what he did previously. He went back to God. And God once again said, you will win this battle. But again, as we look at the second round two of the battle, again, we do not even see the size of the army. We don't even hear about the emotions of the army. It is a battle between the enemy and God's king. This time around, the curtain behind the heavenly throne room is pulled back just a little bit more for us to see. Look at verse 24. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the polar trees, now it really sounds like Lord of the Ring, right? Second episode. You hear trees are marching in the trees. Move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. No, with God facing Israel's army, David struck down the Philistine and began to expand his kingdom from Gibeon to Gaza. So, dear friends, how do Israel? Receive the promised life, the perfect life. Their way is by returning to God's king and humbly seeking the king's forgiveness for the king's leading and the king's protection. And Israel, they find themselves into the king's kingdom and enjoying the king's victory. How about us, friends? How about us? How do we have a perfect life? How can we have a perfect life we desire? Now, the reality is this, right? No matter what kind of life you have or I have, we are not enjoying the perfect life. Every sigh that you give out, have you sigh recently, this week, this morning, every sigh we gave out betrays that that's not the perfect life we have. Every time our blood pressure increases, whether it's at home, especially if you are young moms, right, or in the office, tells us that that's not the perfect life you have yet. Every medical scare, young or old, every fear or nightmare, every broken dreams or relationship, every sin and guilt, every death we witness and cannot avoid, tells us that we are not enjoying the perfect life that God wants us to have. So like Israel, 
I think we need to recognize that our need to come back to the King that God has appointed. We need to turn to Him in repentance, in obedience, in dependence. Let me say that again. Like Israel, we must recognize our need to come back to God's King, Jesus. We need to turn to Him in repentance, in obedience, and in dependence. The question is, have you and I returned to King Jesus? Have we come to Him today, this morning? Not just a quick breakfast prayer that we pray and then we come, but have we, in the morning, commit ourselves in repentance, in obedience, in dependence on God? Or at night before we sleep, have we done that? Do we repent of our sin against Him and others? You know, we need to repent not only when someone gets offended. We need to repent when we realize that there are wrong intentions in us. It could be a gossip, you know, sometimes we, out of good intention, ask, oh, how's this colleague doing in his private life? Or, or all kinds of things in our life, jealousy, envy, lust, fear. And we need to repent also when we start to forget that God is king and we kind of run life our way and independent of him. Do we repent of our sins? Number two, do we obey our king? You know, it's not just the easy commands that we kind of obey at convenience, but the difficult commands that would challenge the very lifestyle that we have, the very life that we have right now. You know, the reality is this. There are no professional Christians. There are no professional missionaries. There are no professional martyrs. There are only Christians. And God calls us to obey Him. And what He has given us is each other, that we can do it together. Do we repent of our sins? Do we obey our King? And thirdly, do we depend on our King? That all the enemies we have in our life physical, emotional, spiritual, that we will depend on our King to lead us. And you know what? After all that we have done, and we start to realize we're still broken people, we're still sin-prone people, will we depend on King Jesus that He will keep His promise and He will still bring us into His kingdom, into the victory? Because He said so and He has given us His covenant. So do we repent of sin? Do we obey our king? And do we depend on our king? If we come to King Jesus in repentance, obedience, dependence, I think when he returns, when he finally returns, he will bring us into his kingdom and he will give us his victory. I would like to close by reading the second last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, where you will see the perfect king, the perfect kingdom, the perfect um, victory and the perfect life. Look at Revelation 21 as I read it for us. Then John saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. There will be a land, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old orders of things has passed away. And verse 5, He who sits on the throne says, I am making everything new. God's perfect kingdom and that of His perfect King, our Lord Jesus, will come. The question is, on that day, will He find us to be the enemies 
or will He find us to be those that have submitted fully to Him and depend on Him to enter? Shall we pray? I just want to give us a moment for ourselves to pray and reflect on King Jesus, His coming, His ultimate victory, and pray to God in reflection of where we are at with Jesus at this moment. I'll just give us a, a short moment and then I'll close us in prayer. I'll now close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, your perfect King. Thank you for the promise of a perfect kingdom. And thank you that there will be perfect victory. Father, thank you for your promise that the day will come where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more moaning, or crying, or pain. You will make everything new. Please help each and every one of us here today to come and trust in King Jesus daily in repentance, in obedience, in dependence. Help us to look forward to that perfect life as we live in submission to our King today. Amen.